Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener. I've been using Scrivener since 2014, and I never looked back. It's an amazing tool for writers in that it lets you build research in the same document that you're doing your work. You can put in images and PDFs. You can organize your work using the corkboard view. You can set goals. You can export it to multiple formats, including ebook and manuscript. There's really nothing Scrivener can't do in the writing universe, and I highly recommend it, which is why I'm so pleased that they're a sponsor. If you'd like to check them out, you can follow the link from our website or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code STORYDISCOVERY at checkout. If you're a writer and you haven't tried Scrivener, I highly recommend it. Give Scrivener a try. You won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Today's story is Letters from My Beloved, written by Sarah Butkovic and narrated by Melissa Collings. Settle in and enjoy. Letters from My Beloved by Sarah Butkovic I started receiving letters from a dead woman about four months ago. At first, I thought it was an error on the postman's part. After all, moving is a tangled web of confusion for everyone involved. And letters and parcels can be misdelivered months after new homeowners arrive. Relatives forget the new address, old friends show up to the wrong door during surprise visits while they're in town. So when a lavender-scented note card, pristinely sealed with a beeswax kiss, landed inside my mailbox, I didn't think anything of it. To whom it may concern was scrawled across the top in calligraphic letters, the ink faintly tinted with a mulberry hue and written with a seasoned hand. What piqued my attention, however, were the two empty corners at the top, no return address or stamp. I ran my hands over the corners thoughtfully. This must have been hand-delivered. The anise-scented breath of October collided with my bones, and I wrapped myself deeper in my cardigan, bounding into my new kitchen, the suspiciously unmarked letter warm in my pocket. I navigated the boxes that lazily slept on the floor and pushed a big crate aside to make room on the kitchen countertop. I pulled out the letter, admiring once again this anachronistic wonder, smelling of sweet maple wood and ripened clove, before carefully slicing open the envelope to reveal what was inside. October 5th, 1985. Hello, my darling. I assure you this is not written with malintent, nor is it meant to come across as something intrusive or threatening, if that's what you were thinking. I understand how strange this may seem to you. You're receiving an unmarked post after moving into your new home in a new neighborhood 
without any connections to the residents here. Rather, this is simply a friendly introduction from someone who's been here for decades now. Somebody excited for new blood in an overwhelmingly droll part of town. I saw some of your boxes when you unpacked the other day, and I wanted you to know that Keats and Wolf are two of my favorites as well. Do you study literature? I'm inclined to say yes in the hopes that we'd have that in common. But I want to refrain from making judgments, lest I get my hopes up. Just know that you have good taste, at least coming from me. I hope this letter finds you well, and I especially hope it did not come across as voyeuristic stalking. I'm simply excited to make a new friend here, and I hope you can find one in me. Best of luck with the rest of your unpacking. Kiss, kiss. Belle Greenley. Unexplainable to me, this felt like the beginning of a romance movie, starring my nonplus self. A warm sensation crackled in my chest, like kindling in a fire, rapidly spreading to the rest of my body. I reread the note more than once to make sure it was real. I overturned it in my hands like an artifact now, being careful not to accidentally bend or wrinkle any of the corners. I'd always been an idealist, a sentimental one at that. The thought of somebody slipping a handwritten, personal, waxed, sealed note into my mailbox felt like an adorable secret, almost like a love poem. I wanted to keep it pristine and protected from the elements, to savor it forever, a work of art. The eggshell paper was as delicate as the leaves dancing outside, all over stained with a whisper of amber. Amidst the musk of autumn, lavender notes wafted up from the letter itself, something I would later recognize as Belle's signature scent. But amid my fascination, a question pounded in my brain with the rhythm of my heart, a resounding thud that grew quicker and harder the longer I ogled this mysterious note. I couldn't help but wonder, who the hell wrote this? And why? My immediate thought was that it must have come from a neighbor who spotted me unpacking through a window the other day, someone enthralled by the prospect of a new plaything. If this Belle was a literature student or teacher herself, she may be viewing me as a book to be read, a sentient novel with chapters dedicated to each phase of my life, illusions, and symbols ensconced deep in my psyche. As someone with long yet unfulfilled academic dreams, I always mused over the idea of turning a stranger's life into a story, spotting someone interesting at a cafe, a library, and just filling in the gaps using my own imagination. I was enamored by the possibility of Belle viewing me as a story. Or perhaps I'd find her a grouch, a curmudgeon crone who never put out holiday decor and let their dogs defecate on other people's lawns. Someone who forwarded ominous chain mail and pretended not to notice when others said hi. Either way, I felt conflicted. A part of me was reassured by this inexplicable delivery. Belle's letter, despite not knowing its origin, 
made the echoes of this empty house disappear, if only for a moment. After all, I'd just moved across the Midwest myself, leaving my limited family and friends in the dust. Even though most people are married and expecting children by the time they're 34, I could see Belle almost being a secret roommate, almost like the college experience I never had. But another part of me felt uneasy, almost like I was being stalked. My eyes fluttered across the room, trying to spot faraway eyes hidden behind layers of glass or disappearing behind curtains. I spun from corner to corner in a frenzy, drawing the shades as I went, encasing my world in blue chevron fabric and blocking out wandering glares. Once safely cocooned, I returned to the letter. A conglomeration of fear, intrigue, and admiration bubbled up. I could only hope that I'd catch this Belle Greenly in the act of delivering her sylvan sweet nothings. Even though there was no way to prove it, I felt certain there would be another letter. And how right I was. Sure enough, envelopes began to arrive in a steady flow by the third week of October, always signed and sealed with a lavender kiss. After the fourth one arrived, I vowed to track her down, itching with an irascible case of curiosity and perhaps an unregistered longing particularly after she began to comment on the intricacies of my life only someone who lived with me could know. Belle would casually offer reading suggestions as soon as I finished a book, drop the name of a nearby park or garden when she noticed I was spending too much time indoors, and would even comment on how I took my coffee, black with two sugars. Have you ever tried tea instead of coffee? It's far healthier for you especially the herbals. Personally, I like Darjeeling, but I think that may simply be because it sounds awfully close to the word darling, which always reminds me of you. Belle. Oftentimes, we'd have one-way conversations about novels or shows I'd be into, although they never really felt one way. Just reading Belle's feedback made me feel like I was engaging with her on some level even if there was no way to write to her in return. I noticed you finished your Hemingway novel. What did you think? Personally, I've never been a fan of his style. Quite dreary, really. You looked so sad when you finished. Why not a happy book instead? I can pin you some recommendations the next time you go to the library. Have you heard of William Blake? Belle. Most people, I assumed would have felt threatened by such intimate comments. But I strangely found it endearing. Belle had become this sort of pseudo-guardian angel in my mind, an omnipresent being always looking out for me and keeping my best interests in mind. I'd never had that before, in either a partner or a friend. I trusted both her opinion and ability to take care of my mental health when I prioritized other things. So one morning, I decided to bake some sugar cookies and ring doorbells to gather intel on the elusive Belle Greenly. Unearthing the year-old flour and the only baking pan I had, I whipped together an unevenly measured batch of goods and prayed they were edible enough to pass as human food. After plating my goodies in a wicker basket to hide their misshapenness, 
I stepped out into the golden light. My first stop was the house next door. Bell Greenley, huh? An old man looking like an off-duty Santa scratched his elongated beard. Nope. I don't know who that is. Never heard that name before. Truth be told, I don't keep up much with who's living where. I keep to myself, mostly. That's okay. Thank you for your time. No problem, sweetie. Appreciate the cookies. Slightly frustrated, but with spirits still high, I tried for the house across the street. Belle Greenley, you making up names or something? I've lived here 15 years and ain't never heard of someone like that. You pulling my leg or what? I'm, I'm not. So sorry for bothering you. Interactions like this are the reason I hole up in my house, I thought. My meek, introverted self is not meant to go door to door like some cookie-pushing salesman. Wait! The woman held out a hand as I pivoted to leave. Imagining she was struck by some divine intervention, I stared at her fatuously. What is it? Actually, since you're still here, would you mind giving me two more cookies? Uh, for my grandchildren? She grinned at me with rogue brashness. It's my job to watch them after school, and uh, it'd be a pity if they came home without a tasty snack. My eyebrows contorted, and my palms became flames. Not willing to have a verbal altercation, or any altercation for that matter, I forced a pseudo-smile and placed two of the most unsightly cookies into her hands. As soon as the woman slammed the door... I stormed down the steps in an iron rage. After making my way down the rest of the block and back, with no luck and a near-empty basket, I plodded home with a crumb-riddled doily, a pair of tired arms, and an intrigue that had only been strengthened by my unsuccessful search. I began to wonder if Belle Greenley might be a pseudonym of sorts, an identity crafted by a timid romantic, too meek to reveal their true identity. But then again, it seemed more likely to just be a candied-over fantasy brought on by romantic literature and an empty, hungry heart. Whatever the case, he or she had to be living somewhere within viewing distance of my house. How else could they comment about what I did at home? But at least one thing my cookie-peddling scheme revealed was that most of my immediate neighbors were over the age of 65, and at that age bitter, retired, and probably widowed, it would be senseless to keep tabs on a 35-year-old mouse living in the smallest and most dilapidated house on the street. I was confused, frustrated, and perturbed that I had developed feelings for someone I may never be able to meet. I spent the rest of my morning-turned-afternoon picking at the cookie crumbs and wishing I had just picked up a pre-made batch at the store so I hadn't wasted my time. The diner had given me Halloween off, so I decided to make a trek to the library to do my own research. My bike wheels shattered the dried pine cones as I cruised to a halt in front of the building, shivering in my faux fur jacket and regretting the sacrifice of practicality for fashion. I pulled the double doors wide, eager to be swallowed by warmth. I approached the plump woman at the welcome desk the paper jack-o'-lantern strewn above her head, smiling exuberantly in stark contrast to the grimace plastered on her face. She looked up at me and scowled, 
Clearly upset, I had interrupted the novel she was reading. Hi, I'm looking for any information you might have about someone named Belle Greenlee. I think she used to live around here. You think so or you know so. The woman's jowls drooped lower than the line of beads dangling from her glasses. Uh, well, I chuckled nervously. It's actually a funny story. I don't get paid to hear funny stories. Why don't you stop wasting my time and go check the microfiches yourself? Okay. Thank you. Sorry. Uh-huh. Choking down another awkward social interaction on my already endless list, I hobbled to the computer lab and sat behind a pillar so the woman wouldn't see me. After waiting for what felt like an eon for the PC to boot up, I sifted through past editions of the local paper until the moisture left my eyes, scanning each clipping meticulously. I couldn't afford to get lazy lest I accidentally skip over a teensy headline buried at the back of the paper that had all the answers. I wasn't exactly sure what I was hoping for during my search, perhaps news of her winning the lottery or surviving a freak accident, but I hungrily searched for hours. And then I found it. The name Belle Greenlee. A small article on the page of the March 1949 local newspaper. Her obituary. Librarian and Oxford hopeful tragically passes at age 23. Thursday, March 31, 1949. Belle Greenlee, a longtime Salem resident and Durham Hills librarian, died in her sleep last night from a heart condition she had been battling since birth. Her parents, Eleanor and Jeremy Greenlee, say their daughter had been diagnosed with arrhythmia when she was an infant, but never expected the disease to take her life so soon. Greenlee, a well-known figure in her community with a passion for literature, had plans to attend Oxford University in Cambridge next year, making her one of the first American women to attend the Ivy League school. Those who knew her said her mind was as brilliant as they come and foresaw a long and prosperous future for the erudite scholar. She was going to change the world, Ronald Corbin, Greenlee's high school English teacher, said. Belle was one of my brightest students, better than all the boys, sometimes even better than me. Greenlee, in addition to her academic endeavors, ran multiple after-school reading programs at Durham Hills. The library says they will continue to uphold these programs in the wake of her death and plans to name a reading nook in her honor. For a while, I stared, rendered immobile an ashen marble statue to be chiseled out of my chair and erected in front of the library. Frozen in time, the plaque on the front would read, girl hardens into rock after reading devastating article. The picture above the blurb about Belle's tragic death was all wrong. The pasty blank background behind her was reminiscent of a cheap school photo shoot set, like a horror plot come to life. In the picture... Belle's face bloomed with dainty feminine features that were complemented by lush lips formed into a pout. Her hair was cropped short, gently curling around her ears like waves. She had been so pretty. When I was finally able to move, I scoured the rest of the library, searching for this alleged reading nook. I came up with nothing. 
Either my stasis had hindered my sleuthing skills or Durham had failed to keep their word. No matter the case, I left the library feeling like a hollowed-out pumpkin. My innards painstakingly scraped away and the rest of me left to set on cold concrete through the night. I spent my Halloween in solitude, as usual, too upset to open the door for the trick-or-treaters dressed as Marty McFly. Call me selfish, but I was frankly too distraught to stare into the bright young faces of children whose only concern was filling their candy sacks up to the brim. Faking a waxen smile was too laborious an effort. While I slumped in my armchair, reflecting, I realized I had come to know quite a bit about my spectral companion since the first letter arrived in October. Although this wasn't the first time I'd pondered about my one-way pen pal on the nights when sleep escaped me, it was the first time I was able to understand her through the context of her life. I wondered how Belle took her coffee, or if she preferred tea. I assumed the former, since she always seemed to comment on my brew of choice. Did she like Charlie's Angels? She seemed like the type of girl who might be into a show like that, if she were still alive. I saw Belle as someone who would have probably been an advocate for second-wave feminism, if she made it to the 60s, and Charlie's Angels was a show about strong women kicking ass. The idea of watching a program together brought a tear to my eye. The truth, as much as I didn't want to admit it, was that Belle was my solace when the loneliness slithered into the house, slipping through the cracks in the windows and underneath doors like an acrid black talon, which was why her death was the rock smashing the glass of my reverie. My heart, speared with reality's blade, was quickly bleeding out. But the next day, I received a letter. November 1st, 1985. My dearest, I see you found out about me yesterday. Quite fitting that it happened on Halloween, is it not? Anyway, I hope you're not put off by this revelation. I never meant to lead you on or make you wonder. I was just afraid that revealing my true form would scare you off. Not everyone reacts well to finding out that their pen pal is a ghost, you know. Anyways, I'm delighted that you're still sticking around to talk to me, though this means we can never formally meet. But just know that I am with you always, even if you cannot see me. There have been countless moments when I wished I could have been there in the flesh with you. I can imagine going to cafes together and making our own book club, even if it's just the two of us. Still, though, I can continue to offer more recommendations. I'm so pleased you've taken so well to my taste in books. You know what's funny? We've been talking for over a month now, and I've yet to learn your name. In the meantime, I've come up with a few makeshift names for you. My two frontrunners are Cecilia and Marilyn. Celia was the love interest of Johnson's Valpone, which I'm sure you'll get a kick out of if you get the reference. As for Marilyn, well... I can't help but think of Miss Monroe herself. You're so darling that only a name synonymous with beauty would be fit for you in my eyes. With love, as always, Belle Greenley. Ever since I learned of her true form, 
Belle started making more of a presence around the house. It began with small things, like messing with the radio to play a song that made her think of me. She introduced me to The Clash on a rainy morning in November, the blare of guitar riffs and scent beats mingling with the pitter-patter of raindrops exploding against the glass of my window and knocking me out of bed. I stood there, still half-sleep in my pajamas, just listening, my body tingling with the instinctive desire to let Joe Strummer's voice twirl me across the floor like a puppet on strings. Shortly after, The Clash became my favorite band, and Belle went out of her way to find stations that were playing their music for me in the morning. To this day, I get rapt euphoria every time I hear their London Calling album. When my alarm clock broke in the beginning of December, Belle would knock something over on my dresser to wake me up and make sure I wasn't going to be late to work. Every night would be a guessing game, predicting what object would fall victim to Belle's shenanigans the following morning. For whatever reason, the porcelain angel figurine became her personal favorite to taunt. Even after I raked enough money from my deadbeat job to replace my alarm clock, Belle would continue to push over the angel just to be meddlesome. I'd wake up to her tiny face lying against the tabletop pine, painted eyes ogling the lines in the wood, stretched and spiraled like mahogany plane trails. I had loads of fun communicating with Belle through objects, yet I quickly found myself with an insatiable craving to probe deeper, to connect with her on a more personal level. I wanted to make her more than just an acquaintance which was why I decided to invest in a Ouija board. I heard about a tarot shop in Uptown from the macabre old woman living next door and went to check it out on one of my days off. The place was a dilapidated brick shack wedged in between a defunct dental office and a retirement home. The purple incandescence of the neon sign that read Bridge Witches cast an eerie hue on my milky skin as I hobbled inside. I felt horrifically out of place amongst the candied clumps of amethyst on the shelves and the voodoo dolls crucified on the walls. I hope no one tries to sucker me into a hundred-dollar bullshit palm reading, I thought, because I don't have the gall to refuse. Very quickly, I settled on a blanched white board with a gothic-style alphabet, eager to buy the first thing that caught my eye to get out of the store right away. The board came with a matching planchette. The tiny circle of glass inside tinted a soft fuchsia, giving it an almost make-believe quality. I sheepishly brought the box to the checkout counter and evaded the judgmental gaze of the cashier. She was heavily drenched in neo-punk clothing, the two studs in her eyebrow jutting out from her skin like twist-and-pull medicine caps. "'Just this for you today, ma'am?' the woman asked coldly. "'Yes,' I said. "'Just that.' All right, it'll be $14.99. My wallet cried miserably as I forked over the cash. Thank you, I muttered as the cashier eyed me scrupulously. She could tell I was out of place at a store like this. You ever played with one of these before? Uh, no, this is my first time. Let me offer you a piece of advice then. She leaned in close for me to see the smudges of eyeshadow clumping in the folds of her lids. Be careful with that thing. It's not a toy. It's not a joke. And it's not to be played alone. Do you have any questions? N no, I muttered skittishly. But thank you for letting me know. With that, I snatched the board from the amethyst glass and scurried into winter's locusts. Bullets of snow 
pummeling down on me like a flock of rabid white birds. After wiping a layer from the seat of my bike, I nestled my purchase in my front basket and pedaled home with the strength of a thousand men, fueled not by the cold, but rather by the quixotic desire to defrost by the fire with Belle by my side. I decided to play alone. I stroked my fireplace, slipped into hand-woven pajamas, and lit two candles to crown the sides of the Ouija board. Although I wasn't too keen on the smell, I settled on a scent called Marshmallow Magic, since my only other option was mahogany teakwood. I figured summoning Belle would require something more saccharine. Setup complete, I set crisscross applesauce in front of the board and gingerly placed my hands on the small foreign object. Owning something so overtly occult unsettled me deeply, especially as someone who grew up in a church. But I was desperate to have a two-way conversation with perhaps the only person who loved me. Over the past three months, Belle had become my partner and confidant, my celestial shadow, following me around and showering me with floral kisses. She had grown a whole garden in my heart in the dead of winter, glens of lilac and lavender sprouting up from her love, making me a greenhouse of warmth and tenderness. Even though I lived alone, something I'd been increasingly worried about when I first made the move, it felt like I came home to someone every single day. Having a back-and-forth exchange with a woman I'd come to view as my solace and refuge, the soul of my dilapidated house brought to life in the form of a beatnik and romantic, was the only thing I wanted to do. Belle? I questioned cautiously. Belle, are you there? If you're here with me, move the planchette over to the yes icon. A draft eddied around my ankles, extinguishing the bite of the fire. Bell? The wooden triangle remained idle, the plate of glass in the center slicing me open with its magenta gaze, a mocking reminder that my own flesh and blood was what separated me from the spirit realm. Bell was somewhere on that other side, lost somewhere in a world of hues, trapped in a house of pink walls and poppy carpet that was identical to mine apart from one tiny detail. She was there, and I wasn't. Belle, I know you're here. You messed with the television like an hour ago. Please say something. I want to talk to you. Still, nothing but silence. It slipped into my ears and filled them with the shriek of white noise, drowning out the tick of my grandfather clock, and the crackling of logs in the fireplace. The planchette was a coffin under my hands, heavy and unmovable. Come on, I begged. Just say something. I'm trying my best to talk to you here. I spent nearly $15 on this stupid thing, and I want to feel like we're actually chatting. At this point, I was just talking to myself. I suddenly felt foolish poring over this painted box possibly suckered into buying something that wasn't a conduit at all. Maybe the rumors were true, and this board was nothing more than a ploy for the gullible. The people so desperate to talk to a loved one that they blindly believed the mysterious hype. After all, Ouija boards were mass-produced like any other product. Fuck you, I said, shoving the thing under my bed. I went to sleep that night, wondering where Belle had run off to. Little did I know that the next letter I received would be the last time I ever spoke to her 
November 9th, 1985. Hello, my dear. It's been a pleasure to watch you settle into a new home all by your lonesome these past few months. I know it must have been hard for you, wanting to be alone, but never wanting to be lonely. And I hope I've been able to bring you as much companionship as I can, given my limited state. But alas, it is now time for me to move too. Perhaps mine is more drastic, but it's still a move nonetheless. It breaks my heart to say this, darling, but I've done my time here now, in this house, on this earth. I don't have a reason to stay anymore. My heart belongs with you always, and I'm sure you already know this, but my duties as a spirit have been fulfilled. I've brought love and life into a house I owned when I was your age, which means I can finally cross over now. In another life, I was just like you, living in that little Victorian, locked away with books and dreams and a hunger for love. I think that's why I was drawn to you so strongly. You'll be in my thoughts always. Maybe if we're lucky, we can meet again somehow. I look forward to seeing you again. Warmly, Belle Greenly. The letter left me in bittersweet tears. I never learned much about Belle's personal life, and I never cared to pry in respect for her privacy. But the concrete thing I did know was that I was able to be her person, and in return, she was able to be mine. And when it came down to it, whether that relationship teetered the line between platonic and romantic, I just knew I cared for her deeply. Because after all, she changed me. She brought love into my house, and even more into my heart. Belle's waxed, sealed kisses stay with me always. To this day, even after quitting my job at the diner, and fulfilling my librarian dreams, I still fondly think about the letters from my beloved. You've just listened to Letters from My Beloved, written by Sarah Butkovic. And we have Sarah on the show today to talk about this interesting story and a little bit about writing in general, perhaps a little bit about becoming a writer at university. So with that, I want to welcome Sarah to the show. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thank you. It's good to be here. So happy to have you on. I am here, of course, with my co-host, Melissa Collings. Hello, hello. And we are ready to talk about this story. So Sarah, tell us a little about yourself first. Sure. So my name is Sarah Butkovic. I am currently studying English at Loyola University, so I'm going for my master's, and hopefully, if all goes well, I will be applying to PhD programs in the fall, Ooh. and then next time you hear from me, maybe I'll be your professor. Who knows? Oh, <laughs> oh nice. so that is your plan. <laughs> that is the, the grand master plan, yes. <laughs> That's great. So, PhD, is that also going to be in writing or yes. English? Yes. Yeah. So, English isn't necessarily writing, though, is it? Not always, not always. So I know a lot of uh, people who teach in college specifically, they either have an MFA, which is a master's in creative writing, so they can teach the more creative elements. And then people who have an MA 
I believe they can specialize in whatever type of era or literary movement they think is most interesting, like modernism, romanticism, etc. Yeah, interesting. Ah. So what's your take on this? Have you thought about that yet? I have, and I'm torn between two that are very drastically different. So I'm <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> All right, let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, so I, I really enjoy modernism and postmodernism, and I also enjoy 17th century poetry. So Oh my goodness, yeah, that is different. People wow. like John Donne, if you've ever heard of him from The Flea or Ben Johnson, people like that. <laughs> wow. Very cool. Varied yeah. interests. I know, I know. So all over the spectrum, but I like that. A good depth of character. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with your English program, does it involve quite a bit of writing, I'm taking it, or is it a lot of reading? It's a lot of both. <laughs> okay. Yeah. okay. Uh, a hefty amount of both, actually. I've never written a paper beyond 20 pages in undergrad, and once I started the master's program uh, last August, I realized that was the standard, and it was uh, ah. quite a rude awakening for me, wow. but I think I've got it under control now. Yeah, uh, that's great. So what are these papers about usually, or tell us a little more about that. So yeah, it all depends on what type of class you're taking. So usually they'll ask you to write 20 pages about um, literary criticism in relation to whatever we're reading in the class. So you have Ooh, to do a lot oh of extra goodness. digging and research. Wow, that kind oh. of sounds horrible. I mean, great. <laughs> <laughs> no, it definitely is horrible in some in some moments. But honestly, once you finish and you press that submit button, just automatic euphoria. Oh yeah, yeah I bet. The accomplishments. So that's mm -hmm. big. Do you feel like that enhances your ability as a writer doing those things? It's a little different than creative writing, but. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It, I think one of my biggest issues in creative writing, which you've known since you've helped me edit the story, is that <laughs> I'm not I'm not friends with brevity. I, I tend to be very yeah. wordy and verbose. And I think especially in academic writing, that's a big no, no. So yes. that has helped me be more concise in my creative writing for sure. Well, that's interesting. Great. That's yeah. not what I would think in academic writing, because it seems like a lot of stuff that I have read, and the same in the business world, is sometimes it can be a little bit um, jargony and uh, verbose is a good word to use. But you feel like yeah, in no, academic writing, they don't want that. No, no, they do the same in academic writing. I have okay, a friend who has her PhD, and she's writing papers all the time. And she was just telling me today that they had her cut like 3,000 words out of her paper, and they they want it to be concise. But I think it's great. I agree. When you have to cut down because it really gets you to the meat of the story and you don't have the extras. But it's very hard to do. I'm like you. I put it all out there and I, I write long too. And that's taken some time for me to actually realize how to do that. And it's, it's huge to be able to do that. But if you look at the greats, they are able to do that really well. Get a message across quickly with few words, mm -hmm. but it's very powerful. You don't yeah. get bogged down in that. So very sure, cool. Sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, let's talk about this story a little bit. So yeah. one of the things I really liked about it is, um, well, first of all, it's a little different. You know, Definitely. you kind of, you start off thinking it might be one thing and then it turns into another. But um, I found that it's really a study about the relation, like what makes a relationship. And so that really drew me into it. But is there any particular um, motivation you had for writing the story or inspiration? Uh, yeah, actually. So I, not to paint myself as some sort of, uh, I don't even know what the word is. I don't want to say lunatic, but. I had, <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, this should be good. Yeah. I, I live directly behind a cemetery. So Lovely. my parents and I, even my friends, people who have come here, 
or stayed here for prolonged periods of time. They've all they've all had questionably occult encounters. So really? I am, yes, wow. I am very familiar with ghosts and everything phantasmagorical. So <laughs> wow. I wanted to write a ghost story that wasn't scary because I feel like so often it's it's framed as this horror story, but I right. wanted to have a more lighthearted approach. Right. I like that. Wow. All right. So uh, tell us, give us an example of something that has happened at your place. Oh, that's okay. a good question. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, two automatically come to mind. One, I was sitting in the basement with my father and we have these big speakers and you have to screw the covers on. And at the exact same time, both of them fell to the floor and we just looked at each other and we were frightened okay. and we had to go upstairs. Wow. <laughs> normally you can pass it off as, oh, you know, strange coincidence. But, and this is, th this story, I feel like y you're not obligated to believe me because if I told myself this, I wouldn't believe me. <laughs> oh, no, we, we're open here. <laughs> we have, <laughs> that's good, that's good. But, um, we have a wall phone in our house and we never use it. I, I've lived in this house for 17 years, so almost my entire life. Wow. And I've not heard it go, go off once, ever. And my friend and I were in the basement where the wall phone is and we have a landline. But the landline rings, the wall phone doesn't. But this particular instance, we heard the wall phone ring. So huh. we were curious and went to pick it up, and there was nobody there. Yeah. Oh, Very creepy. strange. And we asked my dad, and he was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that was about. Yeah. Wow. That yeah. cemetery back there. I know, it has yeah. to be. Well, that is very interesting. So that environment inspired you to write this story. Yes. I like that. So there are themes, like JW was saying, relationships. To me, I really feel like making connections, you know, when you're making connections, also finding your way. The story is about finding your way in a place where you set out to do something. The general you, um, a person sets out to do something that maybe is a little difficult, but they want to do it. They want to pursue something. They know it's going to be hard. And so this relationship with this ghost eases this person into their new life. And I really like that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I um, I think so often when we hear coming-of-age stories, we think about teenagers, yeah. but no one ever really talks about people in their 20s. And as someone who just entered their 20s, I feel like there's a, there's a whole new meaning to what coming-of-age is. So yes. I, I wanted to write a more adult's take on coming-of-age, and I figured the ghost Belle would help the main character find herself in a time where she's lonely and living in a house where she knows no one in the neighborhood, so... Yes. Yeah, I like, I like cool. that a lot. I agree. And a lot of your language is very poetic. And I know you like to write poetry. So to me, I look at this piece as kind of like poetic, poetic prose. I think I, mm -hmm. I'm probably saying that the wrong way, but <laughs> I should be careful what I say when I don't know exactly what that means. No, I think but... <laughs> you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> but yes, it's using poetry in a short story. And so that both of them go hand in hand. So it's a little bit different than what we... Uh, typically have yeah. and so it's very fun tell oh. us a little bit about how that flowery language how you like to use that yeah so I I do not have a very good visual memory I I can't picture anything in my head and I didn't know that this was a thing that people had it's called aphantasia where you have a blinds mind eye so Interesting. Um, yeah, I really enjoy stories that world build and that you stories that use um, extended metaphors or metaphysical conceits to try to place you 
in a space where it might be difficult to imagine yourself in. So that's why I like to use a lot of descriptors or comparisons that might seem strange, because to me, I feel like sometimes the strangest comparisons are the ones that strike the hardest and the ones that can really make you feel like you're in that world that the author has created. Yeah. I like that. That's an interesting take on it, too. You said it's called, say it again? Aphantasia. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Okay. I have not heard of that. Nobody has. Yeah. (laughs) I had neither until maybe two years ago, so. Wow. Very interesting. But I like that you have a purpose why you're doing that. You know, you have a reason behind why you're using that language. And it's to put you in the story. So I think it's fun. It's a fun piece that allows you to experiment a bit, allows you to hear something different. And Mm -hmm. then those those metaphors do strike you. They're very unusual. Yeah, I hope they're unusual in a good way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Of course. Well, so one of the things that you sent us in your background information was that Ray Bradbury is like your all-time favorite writer, author. Tell us a bit about that and uh, what draws you in? What about his writing draws you in? Yeah, so I, I will take any excuse to talk about Bradbury. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I read Fahrenheit 451 in seventh grade and I hated it. And then I just didn't, I, I didn't think that I liked him, but I, um, I read a book of his called Something Wicked This Way Comes a couple of years ago. And it, it's so different to Fahrenheit 451. He writes, I feel like some people don't even know that he writes a lot of gothic fiction and a lot of sci-fi, and they'd only really know him for the dystopian novel of Fahrenheit, but he's Mm -hmm. so much more than that. And I really like him because, A, gothic fiction is my favorite genre to both read and write in, so it's right up my alley. And B, I feel like he's a kid at heart, and you can really tell in his stories. It's perfect escapism to me. I'll never Mm -hmm. feel bad once I'm done reading a Bradbury novel. It'll always make me either feel happy or inspired, which I really enjoy. Yeah, that's cool. And he loves Halloween, and I love Halloween. So it's... it's... (laughs) It goes hand in hand with gothic fiction. Yes, yes. So for our listeners who might not know exactly what gothic fiction is, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what the elements are that are involved? Sure. So gothic fiction actually started with a story called The Castle of Otranto, which is written by Horace Walpole in the 1800s. And since then, a lot of Gothic fiction has followed, like if you've ever heard of Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. Uh, yes, I have that Or The Mysteries of Udolpho. So those are kind of like the pioneering stories of Gothic fiction. And essentially, that. That's awesome. yeah, essentially, um, usually they follow a series of certain points, like you strike one off, one after the other, like on a list. So usually Gothic fiction will have an element of macabre, Sometimes, like an inversion of religion, the occult, obviously. Um, a lot of the times it's set in a castle. There's always an aura of mystery and intrigue. So, those are the defining features of Gothic fiction. Interesting. And so, you say you like to write in that also, then? I do, yes. Well, this piece does not fall into that category, though. I know, I know. Originally, I I know. <laughs> Originally, I was planning it. I was planning for it to be more gothic, but as I was writing, I realized that I didn't want it to be a scary story. So it did take an unexpected turn. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So you have some other short stories already written. I do. You're also working on submitting and excellent. Yes, they're called Ten Twisted Tales. <laughs> Ten, Ten Twisted, Twisted Tales. Tales. A bit of alliteration, yes. Ah, I like great. that. Neat. And you're, you've also written two novels that you said are just hanging out on your desktop? 
This is true. Um, okay. One of <laughs> yes, one of them is. Well, one of them is a novella. It's it's something that I first wrote when I was maybe twelve with my best friend at the time. Wow. Her name wow. was Annie. Wow. Her, yeah. Her name was Annie, and I admired her, and I looked up to her in every single way. And she was a writer, and I was like, oh, I want to do that. If she's doing it, I want to do it. So Aww. that's how I ended up becoming a writer, and we wrote this very cheesy, admittedly, story about this high school freshman who can't find her place in the world. And I know that's, like, the most hackneyed trope ever for YA, <laughs> but I I went back to it at the beginning of the pandemic because I was cleaning out my room, and I decided to rewrite it. So, oh, that's neat. Yeah, that's one of the stories. And the other one is a murder mystery called Cappuccinos and Crimes. Oh, Ooh, you like alliteration. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In I your do. titles. Could you tell? <laughs> well, um, you know, speaking of it being horrible when you first start, that's just kind of the process. I, I recently was listening to a podcast. I can't remember what it was now, but they compared it to like drawing or painting or some other art. In other words, that when you start, you have to assume that you're not going to be good, right? It just, it comes right. out that way. Like you can't start being excellent. Well, and, not everyone, um, you know. Well, of course, yeah, well, but yeah, well, and that's the thing. I think they were mentioning how, um, you know, like there's, when there's like a wow author, like a debut author that's amazing and they get all this attention, but that's very unusual, right? The most of us, we have to work hard at it and it, well, and it takes a long time. If you look at most debut novels, though, the debut it's their debut it's the one that comes out but it's not the first novel that they've written that's true too yeah you know good it's point. like their right. fourth third or fourth novel yeah that's and a they've good had point too. they've had practice so. so anyway i was just saying don't beat yourself up over that <laughs> what were we talking about uh the, the first novel that she wrote which is oh, right, tw- right, right. 12 <laughs> <Yeah>. right <laughs> yeah. it's like we went off on a on a side road here oh no you did i, I was on target <laughs> <laughs> He's just being honest. Of course, of course. Yeah, I just messed around. Um, very interesting. Well, so, yeah, because I read a lot of Ray Bradbury when I was in high school, but I did, I read most of his science fiction stuff. I don't even remember many of those books. It was one of those, like, A City in a Dome or something like that. Is that one of his, do you remember? No? I, I don't know about a dome. The only thing I can think <laughs> of is he wrote um, a dystopian short about a world that was obliterated by global warming or whatever, but then... All of the houses still functioned on their own, so they were going through all these daily tasks of like ma- or making the bed, making toast for the residents that just weren't there. Oh, I yeah. like that. I didn't know he wrote a bunch of shorts. That's mm-hmm. fascinating. I had to find those. I have yes. He the the three that I know of um, the gothic fiction shorts are the October Country, and then his two sci-fi short collections are the Illustrated Man and the Martian Chronicles. The Martian Chronicles is a short? It's it's a collection of shorts, but they're all in the same universe, which is really interesting because you don't realize until you're about halfway through the novel, and then you you end up coming across these crossovers from maybe uh, chapter one or chapter three when you're all the way into chapter 10. So ah, it slowly unfolds. Right. That's cool. That is pretty cool. So do you read other science fiction or not really? So since Ray Bradbury um, inhabits that space. Yeah, I think he scratches the itch for me, so I'm <laughs> I'm it. open. I'm open to it, but I haven't uh, sought any out recently. Yeah, I was just curious. Yeah, it's interesting. I did read Dune, which was oh. lo- bigger than the Bible. Is that yeah. Ray Bradbury? Okay, no, no, that's no, not. that's I I can't remember the name. I think it's Frank something. Yes, I read it, it because they they remade the movie from the '80s. 
Right. Yes. They and pretty recently. Well, there's been a lot yeah. of remakes. There's been a lot of movies version of what? What is his last name? I'm not sure. It's Someone's got to Google it here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead and Google it. I I bet it's on my husband's shelf. I feel like he ta- has talked about Dune, but I am I don't care. Frank about... Herbert. Herbert. Ah, there you go. Yeah. That was fast. Yeah, I, yeah, I read that so long ago. I don't even remember. It was definitely not my favorite. A lot of people loved it. Yeah, it didn't do it for me. It did not do it for me either. No offense yeah. to Frank Herbert. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, we all have our different tastes. <laughs> yeah, it's not my style at all. So I'm not even in that game. Yeah. Well, Isaac Asimov in the Foundation series, that's probably sounds a lot like the Martian Chronicles, and that there's a lot of overlap in these oh, different really? worlds and these sort of narr- narratives that are going on. So I also read those eons ago. So, Well, Asimov, I know Asimov. And just a side bit here, my husband loves Isaac Asimov, and he wrote a fan fiction to end the, the story to the, of the robot series. And it's actually pretty good. Hmm. I've never heard of that. Wait, you mean you say your husband wrote the fan fiction? Yeah, he did. Oh, that's cool. He didn't yeah. like the way it ended, and Asimov died before he was able to finish. And then several people were like trying to write more, but they didn't write the ending. They wrote like prequels and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And well, so he wrote an ending, and so it's actually pretty good. But anyway, side note, that was fun. Yeah, very cool. Well, I was going to ask about the next step in your journey. So you want to achieve your PhD. But you've got a lot of writing under your belt. So you you want to teach, potentially. And what about your writing? What do you want to do? What do you want to achieve in that space? Yeah, that's a good question. I, <laughs> I wish I was able to plan it out. But anything in the arts is just so tenuous as it is. You can't yeah. concretely yeah. make a plan. I would love to be a published author and be selling copies across the U.S. That's yeah. been the goal since I was 12. But okay. unfortunately... <laughs> It's not very feasible, at least at the moment, but I'm hoping one day I'll be able to. Now, why do you say it's not feasible at the moment? I I just, I guess I never really learned how to get started with that. I think if I had gone into an MFA program instead of an M- MA program, they might have taught me a bit about the publication process, but it's just so overwhelming to try to figure out how to do that by yourself, how to get a literary agent, how to start marketing yourself. And I feel like I would rather focus all of my time and energy into that when I have the time and energy. Yeah. And yeah. as a student and someone who's working full time right now, it's it's a bit difficult. So that makes sense. Yeah. Definitely. But one it's, day for sure. Yeah. Well, great. You can always save that for down the line because it is it's a huge process. And I think that we've talked on, you know, on the show before about how when you look at a book on a shelf, you pull it out and read it, the the reader might very well not know what it took to get that book to the shelf. Mm-hmm. And it's such a long process. And so, yeah, it's a big deal. So yeah. I don't blame you for waiting until you're in a space where you want to do it right and find out all the information because you can do it wrong again and again, as I did starting out. <laughs> you you learn from how you do it the wrong way. Right. Go. Because you think, oh, that'll be easy. I'll write a book. I'll I'll get a publisher and that'll be great. No. <laughs> Especially, and I've heard no. horror stories of people who are so eager to start their publishing career that they would just sign any contract that was given to yeah. them. And yeah. then all yeah. of a sudden they weren't making any money from their novels. Right. And I right. do not want that to happen to me. So yes. I would like to be smart about it. Yes, that's very good. You have to be educated. You have to know what the process is, yeah. what you're getting into. But the good thing about kind of being a writer in today's society is that there are so many resources out there, podcasts, blogs of 
professional writers so you can kind of be learning as you go it's so really, and you know it's so easy yeah even Definitely. tiktok i've seen people blow up on tiktok talking about books that they've written really yeah yeah tiktok i refuse to do tiktok so do you refuse <laughs> i refuse i'm i'm done with social media like you know we're the ones that we use on Alex are the ones that i'm like i'm sticking with those <laughs> it's just overwhelming. Social media is overwhelming. You just have fall a into a Not void. to Sarah. Not to Sarah. <laughs> Not to Sarah. Just to us. <laughs> no, it's for me too sometimes, I will admit. Uh, no, yeah. Sarah, you have so many out there. It how it have to be a full-time job. It is because people are the influences. It is their full-time job. Yeah, they're These people who are posting three and four times a day, they are getting sponsorships. They are getting paid to yeah. do that. I am not getting paid to do that and it is yeah. hard to do yeah. it i don't care how old you are it takes time though i don't tiktok you got to be dedicated are you on tiktok i am but i don't make any content i just i watch <laughs> okay you consume yeah all right consumer that's that's fair <laughs> it sucks you in too oh i know that's why i have to pace myself i refuse to go on tiktok during the work day because i work from home so it's so easy to just miss a deadline if i'm oh, just yeah. on my phone sure. yes Right. With the algorithms, they're made to keep you hooked in. It's, that's the scary part about it. Yes. So if so. you actually want to be productive, you better stay off of social media because <laughs> it will suck you in. I have totally. done that with Instagram and their reels. I'm like, oh, oh, two hours have gone by. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> but seriously, right. some people do that. Yeah, sure. It can happen. Well, okay. So then you're writing. Um, I'm curious to see in these classes that you're taking, have they talked about differences between sort of the outlining and discovery writing or, or um, that's, that's question number one. And like the follow up question is, and are you like a discovery writer or an outliner, kind of a plotter? What's interesting is I am, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the uh, Myers-Briggs personality tests. Oh, yes. Yes. So I am very much an INTJ to a T. I, I love planning and organizing every aspect of my life. But for some reason, when I'm writing an essay, I don't at all. I just, I just go. <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes it can prove difficult. And sometimes I wish I had made an outline because I'll end up writing my uh, thesis statement on one topic. And then five pages later, I'll go off on a tangent and right. realize that I've just wasted all of that time. <laughs> um, I'll have to recalibrate. But yeah, yeah I... Surprisingly, I was not really taught how to write. And it's interesting because last semester I took a class in preparation for teaching. It was called uh, something composition and rhetoric, something along those lines. But it actually teaches you how to teach about writing. And it was interesting because almost everyone in that class was never taught about writing. So hmm. we're, we're learning how to write by learning how to teach others how to write. Right. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Wow. Which is fascinating because you have a BA in English, right? Yeah. So, well, I guess that, but it's not a BA in writing. So I guess that is different. They just assume that you know everything right off the get-go, fresh yeah. out of high school. Interesting. Huh. So basically what you're saying is you're a discovery writer. It just comes out and it, you're kind of discovering it as you go. Yes. Even with creative writing, if inspiration strikes, it strikes. Sometimes I'll sit down and I'll just free write because I'm bored or I have time to kill. Yeah. And then I'll end up with a 10 page story and That's I figure great. out what I'm doing as I'm going. So it's a surprise for me too. <laughs> I know. I'm a discovery writer too. And to me, it's like the best part because mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to happen. It's like uh, writing a movie. Yes, totally. I've told people those exact words. 
Oh, that is interesting. Now, one thing that I have to question is when you're doing discovery writing, how much time do you go back or do you spend going back and seeing I overwrote or I shouldn't have written this? Like you were talking about the tangents with your papers. How often do you do that in your creative writing? I think it's a lot less in my creative writing because there aren't any specific guidelines unless I'm writing from a prompt. Um, and sometimes if I do find that the story has taken a turn that I don't like, but I still like what I'd written, I'll cut it out and I'll paste it into another doc. And mm -hmm. then another day, a rainy day, I'll come back to that excerpt and I'll turn that into a different story. I like that. That's right. like when you said that you realized you had just wasted, I was like, no, it's not a waste to write. And I have to mm -hmm. tell myself that because I'm writing a new novel right now. I knew what I wanted to happen at the midpoint. But I start going and I just write and I discover right for a lot, but I have a loose plan. Right. Well, I want my novel to be 90,000 words or less. And at 65,000 words, there's my midpoint scene. So I, I need my midpoint to be at 45,000 words. It's at 65,000 words. That's what kills me with discovery writing when you don't have a plan because I've got to go and take out 20,000 words to get me where I need to be for my midpoint. Yeah, but as long as you don't throw it away, I'm very anti-kill your darlings. If you if you Are guys you? have heard that phrase, yeah, I don't like it. I don't I don't like wasting ideas if you think they're good, even if they're not appropriate for whatever context you're writing in. You know, what yeah. I like I like you saying that is because that's a big thing. Like everybody says, kill your darlings, but you you can actually just pull your darlings out and place them somewhere else. Right? Why yeah, kill a lot of time. them? Sure. Mm -hmm. Recycle them. Well, what Recycle I do, your darlings. <laughs> so I don't get so depressed when I pull out stuff that I really like, but it's not really contributing to the story, is I have a taken out for now section. Maybe I'll be able to add it in later. I don't ever add it in later, but I, yeah, that's you know, I it's like ask. psychologically, I take it all out. I'm like, well, I might be able to add that back in later. And then I forget <laughs> about it. You know, I kind of finish and like, right. I, did, I didn't need it. So. <laughs> right. Oh, that's funny. But maybe yeah. you can go back and check that folder and do what Sarah said. Create oh, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Great. Well, so what do you like to do when you're not writing, working, or reading? I I like what to make crossword <laughs> puzzles, and I like to solve crossword puzzles. Um, I I started I started doing them at the beginning of the pandemic, and it's an addiction. I I wow. solve the New York Times every day, and I realized about six months ago that you can submit them for free, and if you're published, you get five hundred dollars oh. for a weekday and fifteen hundred for a Sunday. So I've been sending them in time Wait, so after time. You're not, um, you've been creating them. Yes, which is oh, a lot harder than them. solving. It's, oh, sure. It's, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I actually made one today. I, I received a rejection letter from the New York Times today, and I really, really was just hyped on my theme. I knew that it was original, and I knew that it was something that would be valuable to the New York Times, at least in my opinion. So yeah. I, I spent the afternoon editing it and making it better, and I sent it in this morning. So. Fingers crossed. Although I did, I, I actually heard a story on Good Morning America today about this English teacher who had been trying to get published in the Times for 14 years. Oh, my, oh my goodness. goodness. So that makes me a little scared. But I, Talk about I have dedication. Hope. I have yeah. hope. Yeah, sure. Hey, That's yeah. what a cool hobby. So is there a software that you use to do that? How do you yes, do that? Yes, I don't think I use the most optimal software, to be honest. I, I use a website called Crossword Hobbyist. So how does that work? I'm I'm very curious. Do you put the words in you want or do you have to lay it all out and do you have to puzzle it together yourself? Yeah, so I, I can walk you through just briefly <laughs> how excited. I would do one. 
Sorry, (laughs) listeners, I'm curious. Oh, no. So first I'll come up with a theme. Um, So for example, the theme I made today was revolving around chess. So usually there's one theme answer that helps you get the other clues. Um, So the theme was checkmate. So I put checkmate in the middle of the board. And then I decided that to fit this theme, I wanted there to be shaded squares throughout the board that formed a checkmate situation. Oh, I love it. Yeah, so I would have four squares. I would have four (laughs) squares in different places and the four squares would spell out going clockwise R-O-O-K for rook, K-I-N-G for king, P-A-W-N for pawn. And then I would build the grid around those so that when it's all finished, you have checkmate in the center for the reveal. And then once you finish the puzzle, you can see that the board has literally spelled out checkmate for you. Oh, I like it. Wow, that's really cool. Fingers crossed they take it this time because last I they had comments for me, but it was constructive criticism. Oh, that's good. Well, now we have to, how, fa- how quickly do they get back to you? Three months. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, hopefully they're, they're not a listener because then they'll be like, oh, I know that one already. <laughs> oh, no. Or, or, or even worse, I, I've just given an idea to somebody else and they get it in before me. Exactly. No. But you've oh, already no. sent You've it already in, submitted right? it, so you're good. I, well, we'll hope so. I, I don't know how, how their reading process is. No, we're going to yeah. go with you're in and yeah, we're going to sure. be positive that this is the one. I I'm sure so. they do it, it chronologically. There's no reason not to. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. I don't know if you guys have ever done puzzles. Or if you're familiar with Will Shorts, he's the puzzle editor for the New York Times. Yeah. I used to think I had good solve times because the puzzles get harder as the days go by and the weeks. So Mondays are always easiest and Saturdays are hardest. Mm. And I used to think I was godly because I could solve a Monday in about 10 minutes. And I recently, <laughs> yeah, I recently found out that the people who regularly contribute to the Times can solve in maybe two or three minutes tops. Oh, That's my amazing. goodness. Insane. Yeah. It is amazing. Insane. And, yeah, insane. Yeah. Wow. I think, I think I've heard Will interviewed before, maybe on NPR or something. He was a fascinating guy. Yeah. So, very cool. All right. Well, believe it or not, here we are, a little bit over 30 minutes, so we should probably wrap it up. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> no. This is all about having fun and getting to it. But the last question that we always ask is for you to give some writing advice or a resource or something that you think would be helpful to aspiring writers like yourself and then also listeners that are curious. Um, okay, so there's a lot I could say right now. Yeah, I'll I say think, it all. <laughs> um, a resource, well, first of all, a resource that I found really helpful, at least to motivate me when I didn't feel like writing because sometimes... Maybe, I don't know if you guys are ever like this, but you feel like you have a good idea, but you're afraid of messing it up. So you just kind of put it off because oh, yeah. you're, you're afraid of disappointing yourself and you're afraid of disappointing these characters that don't exist yet. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. But there's a, a website called, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly. It's either NaNoWriMo or NaNoWriMo, but it's National Novel Writing Month. And oh, yeah. every November, uh, they challenge you to upload your word count every day and try to write 50,000 words from November 1st to November 30th. And it's, trust me, it's a challenge, but I've done it three times and it's always so rewarding. Do you make it to the 50,000 every time? I have only made it to the 50,000 once. Okay. Yeah. But that was in high school. So I had more, more free time, but I still try nonetheless. Right. It's NaNoWriMo. It is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I really like that website. Yeah. Great. Okay. And that's the resource. Anything else? Uh, In terms of advice, I think... Even if it's the smallest seed of an idea, just flesh it out and see where it takes you. And I feel like so many times people are, at least, I don't know, in the academic setting from what I've 
I've heard from my what I've witnessed, people seem to be anti-genre fiction. And Ooh. I feel like there's a lot of stigma surrounding different types of stories like YA novels. I, I heard uh, from a professor who used to work as an editor that she was told if she starts reading a manuscript and it has a teenage female protagonist to just scrap it immediately. Because what? they Yeah, because it's so hackneyed that you've seen it so many times okay. that they don't even want to publish it. And yeah. I hearing stuff like that is really discouraging for people who like writing like that. So sure. I think just do what makes you happy and you'll find the right people to publish you. I agree. That's yeah. very wise. Yeah. It is. Yeah, and you find the right audience. I think right. there's somebody out there I, I read read with somebody online recently had said that there's somebody out there, there's an audience for your story who wants to hear what you have to say. Exactly. Definitely. You just have to find them. Yeah. And we we take everything, but I I prefer genre. You know, I like a I like a good story that's not hard on the brain. <laughs> Sometimes that's better. <laughs> I know, exactly. And not that not, not that all uh, you know, literary fiction is or anything, but um, you know, just something that's fun and light and entertained. So anyway. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for submitting your work and letting us work with you on it and uh, coming on the show to talk about it. Yes, yeah. thank you for having me. It was very fun. Yeah, it's yeah. fun for us too. It's been great. And good luck to you with your PhD and your writing career. Thank you. We'll see how things go. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.